0: Every time I talk on this topic, uh, I I just feel like I come under some really bizarre attack. And and this, it's almost like predictable now, and this time was no exception. Last night, I laid down to go to bed, and uh, that just wasn't going to happen. And all night long, I tried every particular corner of the house to curl up in and and trying to sleep, and, and nothing worked and I was hearing bizarre sounds all night long and all sorts of strange stuff that I, t- I told you about. You think I was really weird, and, and I'm not going to tell you then because I want you to like me. But <laughs> I finally fell asleep about 5 o'clock in this morning when I was trying. I was just thinking, well, should I get up and just, you know, get ready to go to church or not? And then I fell asleep and overslept. So I got two hours, one and a half of it being, being late. And this morning I got here and I was all knotted up and in a bad mood. My eyes were burning and, and didn't feel like being here. And, and half the people on the worship team didn't feel like being here. And a lot of other people were late and I don't know what their excuse was. But anyways, um, we were just all knotted up. And as soon as we got into worship, we just, you know, before the worship service, prayed and made this commitment. We did it before the second service too and just said, Lord, uh, we're going to take where we're at. We're not going to pretend like we're someplace else. We're not going to fake it, but we're just going to commit ourselves to worship you, worshiping you in spite of it. And for all of us, there was such a lifting, such a breaking of that stronghold. For me in particular, I went from being so tired, and I feel very much awake. And, and I, got, I was getting blessed back there. God is good, you know, and, and that's what it's all about. It, it's, it's taking where you're at, not being other than where you're at. Don't try to pretend to be other than where you're at, but take where you're at in spite of where you're at and worship God anyways. And then he can make you, bring you to someplace better than where you're at. The enemy, what the enemy intends for evil, God intends for good. And that's what this whole morning, morning's been about. So I want to talk about Spiritual warfare. My big biggest problem here this morning is this: this stuff is in my head i 'm now working on this uh, kind of manuscript about Satan and the problem of evil and th- I live this stuff it 's in my head i got I got it crammed up here, and it 's in my heart and there 's no way this sermon's going to be less than two hours it's just uh, <laughs> have a good day <laughs> no and, but i What I want to do here is this, in response to three different questions that people at Woodland Hills have asked, and they're very common questions, I want to just lay some foundations, some ABC stuff uh, about spiritual warfare. For for some of you, this will be hashing out old material, but that's fine because we need to hear it over and over again. For some of you, this is going to be a little too far in front of you, but I encourage you to follow it. Uh, One of the things about Woodland Hills on this issue, as on about every other issue that I can imagine, is that we got people coming from the widest variety of spectrums add it from different angles and whatnot. And this is just a way to kind of bring us up to speed and be somewhat on the same page uh, about spiritual warfare. The text I want to read and then we're going to pray is found in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It's in your bulletin on the uh, right-hand page where Paul says this, very important passage, and I'll be quoting a number of other scriptures too as we go on this hyper-speed uh, sort of uh, talk. Paul says, for our struggle. We are in a struggle, folks. It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, Sorry, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. Apparently the world is dark, and apparently it's dark because there are powers and authorities and rulers over it who are dark. And against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what apparently we are to be struggling with. Let's pray. Father, I got so much in my heart and so much on my mind. And so much I want to accomplish, Lord, and I know, Lord, that it will be overkill if I try to say it all. Lord, I pray that you would help me screen out what is not essential and say what is essential. Lord, help this message as your word goes forth, anoint it with your spirit and power. In order to, Lord God, I, I pray, Lord, specifically for 100 people that are here this morning, maybe 200, I don't know who are primarily church-going believers, I pray, Lord, that you'd use this message to change them from being church-goers to warriors. Father, you want us to be warriors. You've called us to war. You've equipped us for war. And I pray, Lord God, that this morning should be, could be a wake-up call for some here this morning to make out of them effective people who are excited and even joyful about coming against the enemy. And doing what you've called us to do, Lord God. But you've got to do that. I can't do it. I release it. And use the few words we're going to say to accomplish that. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. There was a, um, a, two weeks ago, I got a call from this lady. It wasn't at all an untypical call as, uh, oh, pause for a second, okay? You guys back there, make sure you don't unplug me this time, all right? I guess I don't have to worry. Dave, Dave Churchill's not back there, so I'm going to be okay. Last week, in the middle of my sermon, all of a sudden I'm preaching and you hear this. So I don't want that to happen again. So be careful back there. Got this call from this lady that isn't that unusual. I get calls like this quite a bit. But this one was, was, was really interesting. It was, a, it was a distressed mother. And what she really wanted to know at first was, was whether I believe that demons were real. She was really concerned about that. Do you believe that demons are real? Do you believe in the devil? And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. She, and she started asking all these questions. I felt like I was in some kind of inquisition. Well, do you think that they can possess people, you know? And could it be Satan? And all these other kind of questions. And I kept on saying, yeah, I, I believe that. I mean, it's in the Bible. I believe that. Finally, I asked her, is there a particular reason why you want to find out all this about me? Well, then she began to tell me what her story was. And to make a very long story short, she gradually, she was very hesitant, very scared, I could tell. And she kept on being reassured. Now, you really do take this stuff seriously, right? And I say, yeah, I do, and she would, the more I'd say it, the more she'd know more about what was going on. But to make a long story short, her son, though raised in a Christian home, had, at about the age of 13, gotten involved in the occult, and though she didn't know it at the time, she noticed about that time a change in his countenance became more irritable, more ragey, kind of more mood swings, which in itself isn't that unusual for, you know, 13, 14-year-olds, but I kept on, you know, asking her, well, what else is going on, and She finally told me this. In the last half a year or so, this boy has been going into these fits of rage. And then these fits of rage, she said, it's like he's not there behind his eyes. You look at his eyes and you don't see him. And his physical countenance changes. And his voice gets very austere and ragey. And lately, he's been talking about killing her and killing the family and going into graphic, increasingly graphic detail about how he's going to mutilate her and amputate this and where he's going to bury each part. And when he's in these fits of rage, he talks in the first person plural. And that's what really began to get her freaked out. One time she asked him, Why are you saying we are going to kill you and we are going to cut you up into pieces? Who else is talking? His reply was, Satan, of course. I asked her, do you go to church? She goes, yes. I've always gone to church. I said, well, have you talked to your pastor about this? Do you have some people, some friends that you can pull together and go through your house yesterday and start praying over this thing, start coming against spiritual forces that are there, start rebuking this stuff, start praying for your son, etc., cetera, et, cetera, et cetera. And her response was, oh, our church doesn't, just doesn't get into that kind of thing. We don't like to talk about that stuff very much. I said, well, then have you gone in private to your pastor? And she said, no, he really wouldn't understand. He wouldn't know what to do, and he probably wouldn't believe me, and they would think that there's maybe I'm a little bit cuckoo. I really believe, just from my own experience, that there are a lot of people that are in the situation of this lady or something like it. I find that whenever I start talking about experiences that I've had with supernatural dark stuff, I've had a couple kind of gives people permission to start talking, and when they start talking, you find out that there's a lot of people, maybe one in every four, one in every five, I don't know, who have had some kind of unexplainable experience that is dark, that they suspected that, the, that there were demonic forces involved in it. But no one talks about it, because no one wants to sound like a flaco, like a cuckoo in our in our culture. That's what you sound like when you start talking about demons keeping you awake at night. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah this guy, is who let him out? You know, it's... So everyone shuts up about it, and everyone thinks that they're alone, that, that it's just a private little weird stuff, Whereas, as a matter of fact, it's kind of widespread. And there are many believers, I really think, I know, that live in a state of uninformed ignorance because it's never taught about what spiritual warfare is. And they have kind of a vague awareness, maybe a, a kind of curiosity about it, but they don't know how to do it, when to do it, what to do it, if it's real or whatnot. Because of the ignorance, many believers live in a kind of state of fear. Many people don't want to talk about this. They just don't want, no, 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 I don't want to hear, don't want to hear about it. Don't need to hear about it. It's not important. God will take care of that. This is not my business. I don't want to know about it. And they're just uninformed. And then there are a totally different group of believers who they hear about it and they believe it and they get obsessed with it. Uh, There's there's, there's certain kind of kids when they first learn about germs, that there are little bacteria out there that are trying to get in you, they freak out, you know, and, and and uh, you know they're afraid to breathe because just the idea boggles their mind. And some believers get like that when they start hearing about demons. And now all of a sudden there's demons everywhere. They're going to get you. They're going to you know corrupt you. They're going to steal your kids. They're going to make your hair go gray or what have you. And if you're if, you know if you get a headache, it's a demon. If you're constipated, it's a demon. If you can't find a parking space, it's a demon. And there's a demon behind everything. And they get obsessed with it. And other people look at that and they say, well, if that's what this demon stuff is about. I don't want anything to do with that. So well, they go on in their ignorance. We need here, folks, a, a kind of balance about this whole thing. Not obsession, but not ignorance. Not preoccupation with it, but an informed awareness of the reality of it. Now, one of the first questions that a number of people had, and to some of you this is going to be kind of a duh kind of a thing, but a lot of people are there, and I understand it because I've been there. The question is are these things really real, and, and, and are they important to know about? Are they really real? It's possible, it's likely. In fact, it even happens that there's a lot of believers in the church that really don't believe that that is really a real thing. Because you can't see them, after all. And we're an enlightened country, an enlightened nation. We're enlightened people. And we know that back back in the dark ages, in the Middle Ages. People believed in gremlins. And and then they see these kind of comic book figures of these devils with little horns and the points out the back and the horns up here. And they do, you know, it's like, if if that's what a demon is, then that's obviously not real. Therefore, I don't believe demons are real. It's a superstition kind of a thing. Consider a couple of things here. First, I'm going to give a little philosophical argument, and then I'm going to turn to the Bible. Are demons real? You are hard-pressed to find any... In fact, I don't think you can, can find it. I'm just leaving myself in, out in case there's somebody here who's an anthropologist who will find it. But you're hard-pressed to find... Why do I throw in those footnotes like that? I don't know. But you're hard-pressed to find. As long as I'm on footnotes, I'm gonna say this as well. I'm not keeping my shirt unbuttoned like this on purpose. Like I'm trying to show off my massive chest or something. I busted a button. Because my chest is so massive, you know? Okay, I just want to get that clear because some of you could be out there saying, why doesn't he button up his shirt? Well, I can't. So, I'm not coordinated enough. End the footnote, back to main text. Whoa. Oh, where was I? Okay. Oh, yes. You're hard-pressed to find any culture in the history of humanity. I don't think you can find any that hasn't taken it as an assumption for granted as something that was totally obvious that the world is filled with spiritual beings, myriad innumerable uh, numbers of, of angelic beings, some of whom are good, some of whom are evil, the behavior of which affects us directly. You go back to the Greek philosophers even, you know, Plaristotle, Aristotle and Plato. And Socrates and all these people, they all believe that the world was inhabited by spiritual beings. And so it is with every culture that's ever existed. It's assumed, it's obvious to everybody. And the more we learn about primitive cultures as anthropologists do their study and whatever, I'm getting into this stuff right now because I'm preparing it for this, this thing I'm doing. These people, some of these people, like the Aborigines in Australia, have this very elaborate understanding of spiritual warfare. Good angels, bad angels, what to do about them and whatnot. And I think, I really believe, That in this respect, on this issue, many of those pagan primordial cultures are far more advanced than a lot of Western Christians who don't see this stuff, who don't believe this stuff, because they're in on it. They know that it's real. They know that it's there. But in our culture, we don't see it, and so the assumption is that they must not be real. The very idea that because we don't see it, it must not be real is, is, is a weird one when you think about it. Those of you who know anything about physics understand that what we have been learning this century is that the more we know about reality, the more, the more we know that we don't know much about reality, even on a physical level. One of the things that we've really come to see is that most of what is real, we do not see with our eyes, we do not sense with our senses. What we, what we think is, what we can sense with our senses is a very small slice of what is real. Most of the light spectrum, for example, we don't see. Do you know that there are subatomic particles that can pass through seven light years of solid steel before they'll ever collide with another particle? They are that small. Now, if you were one of these little neutrinos, well, that's what these little particles are called. They're really small. Uh, And and that's why they can pass through solid stuff so fast. Um, But if you were one of them, you wouldn't think metal was real because you wouldn't collide with it. It's not real to you. Well... They tell us that there are thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of such different kinds of subatomic particles, and we never see them. We never know that they're there. We don't see radio waves. Most of reality we don't see. So the question is this. On what basis can anybody say that because you don't see spiritual beings, therefore they're not real? The more we learn about reality, the more bizarre it gets, and so it seems to just kind of perfectly fit that the world would be saturated, filled with spiritual beings that we can't see. Although, mind you, there are people who occasionally do see them. But on the whole, they don't. The way the Bible portrays it is this. In agreement with what every other culture in the world has seen. In agreement with what other people, other cultures have, have taken for granted. We are the little weirdos, folks, in our little Western culture the last 200 years that have denied spiritual beings. We are the weird ones. And, and, and if you don't see what everyone else says that they see, maybe the problem is in your seeing, Right? Well, we're the little, in our little cultural 200 span of time the last couple of years, we're the oddballs. The way the Bible portrays it is in agreement with what most other cultures have seen, and it's this. The Bible assumes that between us and God, there is an entire society, if you will, an entire spectrum or hierarchy of spiritual beings. Whereas many Westerners today think that we are the highest form of intelligent life, the Bible portrays human beings as being the lowest form of at least free, morally responsible, intelligent life. What is above us between us and God in a world sort of in between us and God is a whole society of angelic beings. Now many people today assume, and this is important, many people today assume that, pu- that, that angels are mere puppets on God's hands. Like they really don't have any mind of their own. They're just sort of like God down there going, you know, hi, I'm an angel. And, and, and they don't have any kind of free will of their own. And then here's a bad angel. From a biblical perspective, there's nothing to support that view. From a biblical perspective, the myriad, the innumerable amount of angelic beings, spiritual beings between us and God are like us in that they are intelligent, are like us in that they are morally responsible, they're like us in that they're free, but they're unlike us only in that they're disembodied, and they're unlike us in, in the sense that they have a greater jurisdiction of what they're in charge of. The Bible talks about principalities and powers. It talks about sort of an angelic hierarchy. It talks about the host of heaven. It talks about God's counsel of heaven. And it always assumes, and this is really important, that these beings have a mind of their own. They can decide to go with God or go against God. Read sometime, when you get home today, read Psalms 82. I bet most of you have never noticed it before. It's a wild, wild passage. I'll give you a nutshell of it. Psalms 82. The psalmist, the psalmist talks about God, Yahweh, being in what he calls the great assembly. It is the assembly of the gods, he says. And Yahweh says to these other divine beings, you are gods because I have made you thus. But, if you do not carry out the assignments I've given to you, now listen to this, if you do not administer to the needs of the needy and to the, the oppression of the poor and administer justice, he's talking to gods now, or angels. Unless you do that, you will become like every other ruler on earth. You will die like mere mortals. Is this bizarre or what? God is talking to this council of his and he's saying, you better carry out the assignments that I'm giving you. If you don't, you're going to die like mere mortals. Clearly assumes that the divine society is very much like the human society. It's not all that different. And there are angels that are given different territories, different regions, different assignments, different jurisdictions, or what not. And they can, uh, they can decide to go with that or to go against that. Now what the Bible says is this. Many of these angelic beings, we don't know how many, many of them fell. Many of them rebelled. They have the capacity to do that just like we do. Those are the ones that the Bible calls demons. And they are real. In fact, the Bible portrays it like this. We just need to take this on the authority of God's word. This cosmic society, as it were, this hierarchy, the top one, the top rung of the ladder of created beings. His name was Lucifer. The bright and morning star. Had the most potential for good. Had the most authority to govern. He, the Bible says, fell. And God's creation, when that happened, because he had the capacity for doing that, when the top dog on the rung falls, everything underneath it gets screwed up. And if you're wondering why the world, though it exhibits some beautiful aspects of God's uh, uh, createdness, God's creating it, why it is nevertheless full of some things that show forth real, diabolical, nightmarish evil, the reason is because it is all screwed up. The whole creation is screwed up. Paul says in Romans 8, the whole creation is subject to decay. It groans. Why? Because the top dog of created beings rebelled, and with him innumerable angels. And now the, Bible says, now the Bible says that this world is under the siege of Satan and this now counter-evil army called his kingdom. The Bible says, you know, in Luke chapter 4, verse 6, Jesus, Satan is tempting Jesus. And Satan says, all the kingdoms of this world have been given unto me, and I can do with them whatever I want. Bow down and worship me, Jesus, and I'll give them to you. And Jesus does not say, why, that's not true. They haven't been given to you. That's a lie. What Jesus says is, I'm not going to worship you. But he assumes that Satan was to that degree telling the truth. Because this being apparently was given the jurisdiction of God's providential creation, and he blew it. He screwed up. But he keeps the authority. That's why the Bible the Bible calls Satan the god of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, the god of this age, the principality and power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. 2. He's in control of the entire world, 1 John 5.19. This is a being that's got authority over the earth and can wreak destruction. And I don't say that in order to scare anybody. I say it because it's true. Jesus, three times in the book of John, calls him the prince of the world. He uses the Greek word archon there which means highest ruler in a given territory. That, he says, is Satan. Now, is it important that we know about these things? Why not just, you know, why why do we have to talk about these unpleasant subjects? Can't we talk about nice things once in a while? Well, I don't mean to be unpleasant, but it's important that we know about it. Paul says, don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. You see, is this important or what? Jesus... When he came, and we don't see this a lot because we read the Bible through our western lenses that don't take demons and stuff seriously. But the main reason why Jesus came, according to Scripture, he accomplished a lot of things when he came, but the main thing he accomplished was he wanted to defeat this arch enemy of his. He's at war. He's been at war. For longer than we've been around, he's been at war. And he wanted to vanquish the enemy. And he's using, and I can't figure out why it turned out like this, but he's using what's going on here on the planet Earth as the sort of D-Day against the enemy to finally vanquish the enemy. So the Bible says in 1 John 3:8 that the Son of God was manifested to destroy the works of the enemy. And Hebrews 2.14 tells us that he, the Son of God appeared to destroy him with the power of death. The devil, the one who had the power of death. That's one of the weapons that he has. And Colossians 2 and many other things tell us that the reason why Jesus Christ died on the cross had something to do with the fact that he wants to subjugate all enemies under his feet. He wants to tear down all principalities and power. He wants to finally, once and for all, desecrate, decimate, and have victory over his arch enemy, Satan. And in doing all of that, he wants to free us from his death grip. He wants to win back the world that rightfully belongs to him, but now is under the evil grip of this diabolical being. And that's why, whether it squares with our Western mentality or not, you can't get around the fact that throughout the Gospels, one of the main things that Jesus does is he comes against the enemy. He exorcisms form the second most frequently thing that Jesus did in his ministry. Boy, I could have said that a little more convoluted, but I don't know how. The thing that Jesus did most, second only to healing people, was deliver them from demonic strongholds. In fact, the first word out of his mouth when he talks about what he came to do in Luke chapter 4. Verse 16, he says, I've come to set the captives free. I've come to set the captives free. And in case there was any ambiguity as to what he meant by that, three verses later, four verses later, he goes out of the synagogue and he demonstrates what he means because he exercises a person who's possessed of a devil. He says, this is what I mean. I'm here to kick some devil butt out of this world and to set up God's kingdom and give it back to the one who rightfully owns it, and that's my father. And that's one of the central things that Jesus Christ was here to do. Now, he says, I've come. To bind up the strong man. I've come to plunder his, his, uh, his fortress. But you cannot plunder the fortress of the strong man until you bind him up, until you tie him up. Jesus came to tie up the strong man. But here's the thing that we got to see, and we got to see it really, really, really clearly. He gave to his body number two, as it were. His incarnate body he took up to heaven, but then he made a new body for himself, and asked the church. And what he... His first... His, his incarnation, when in his incarnation, he tied up a strong man, but now he says to this body, now you go raid the house. You go plunder the goods. And that's what most centrally defines the work of the church. We have authority over the enemy. We have authority over all who work under him. And what we are to be about before we are about anything else is winning back territory for the kingdom of God plundering the enemy's house, taking back minds and taking back hearts and taking back families and taking back bodies that belong to God, but the enemy is had under his diabolical control. We're to win them back for God. We are... This is why Jesus says, this is why Jesus says in in, in Mark chapter 16, he says, the first thing he says about the church, Mark 16, he says, Peter, upon the confession of your faith, I'm going to build my church. You know what I mean by that? Now here it comes. First thing. And the gates... hell shall not prevail against it. Because I give unto you the keys to the kingdom of God. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's what the church is about. That's how you build the church. The picture here is this. There's the gates of hell. Here we are. Those gates can't prevail against us. So God endows us with the Holy Spirit. He gives us a battering ram of the word of God, and we are to be coming against Coming against those gates. Repeatedly coming against them. Coming against them in our hearts. Coming against them in other people's hearts. Coming against them in their minds. Coming against them in their families. Coming against them in poverty. Coming against them in racism. Coming against them wherever we can find them. And we are to be looking for them. And we're to be tearing them down, bashing them down in order to win back ter- 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 territory for the kingdom of God. That's what the church is called to do. Is it important that we know about this stuff? You've got to believe it's important. How do you fight an enemy that you don't even believe in? How do you find an enemy that you don't really think is even there? One of the central strongholds in our culture is this. It's that the enemy has anesthetized the church by thinking that what, what it's about is being good. Yeah, that's what it's about. Being nice. Kicking bad habits. Reforming people. That's what we're about. That's what, when, you take, when you take warfare out of Christianity, you know what you get? You get a shadow skeleton of a religion. It's about buttressing up people's morality, which isn't a bad cause, mind you, but this isn't supposed to be a morality buttressing kind of thing, not first and foremost. It's a, when you take out warfare out of, the, out of Christianity, you get something that doesn't have any kind of bite, any kind of passion. I don't know if you've been around to churches that don't have any kind of warfare, but you find this. There's no bite. There's no passion. There's no defining kind of drive in the heart. They're about being good and, and whatever, and that's fine, but it's not complete. God calls us to be involved in warfare, to be about tearing down strongholds, to be about this war. But how do you do that if you don't even think that there's an enemy? C.S. Lewis, I read this this last week. C.S. Lewis says this, and this is typical C.S. Lewis way he talks. But he says, "You know, a man, a man who knows that he's pretty drunk, is still quite sober. But when he forgets that he's drunk, then he's really drunk. Isn't that great?" Remember that. Next, note. Uh, Even though, he says, I'll complete the analogy, the highest form of diabolical control is, that, is when you don't even know you're being diabolically controlled. You don't even know that you're a pawn of the enemy. If you knew that, you would have some freedom over against it. What does that say about our culture the last 200 years that has been completely blind to this sort of thing, has not even seen it? What does it say about it? There's been a stronghold here. It is to the enemy's advantage to keep the church from not believing there's a war, not believing that he's real, and not believing that anything is at stake in that. That's his greatest form of control. But what God is doing, folks, in, in these days is he's raising up some people who have the awareness and have a balanced perspective on it and know who they are in Christ and know what their power is and they know what their authority is and they know what their identity is and they're coming against this stuff. And winning back territory for the kingdom of God, and that's what the church is called to do. Paul says, Don't be ignorant of the enemy's devices. But the sad commentary on the Western church for most of its history has been that we didn't even know about any enemy's devices, let alone be ignorant of them. We don't even think there's an enemy. Now, a second question, and I got to close with this one. <laughs> that was my introduction. I got to close with this. What? Okay, here's a question that people had. I want to be very practical about this. I'm going I'm to summarize two pages in. In in five minutes, what can demons do, and what can we do about that? A number of people had questions that were along those lines. What 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 can they do? I want to know what can they do. What are they capable of? You know, it's like we're talking about spiritual germs here, you know. And we want to know what kind of damage can they inflict, and how do we prevent it? What's the spiritual vaccination uh, to this whole thing? First of all, what we can do about it, we are to be involved in spiritual warfare. And that's not some weird thing, okay? There's, some people, like, they, they never pray spiritual warfare prayers because they think that they haven't read the book on it yet, or they don't know the formulas, they haven't been to the retreats, they haven't gone to the sessions, da 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 And when they try to do it, or when they hear it done, it sounds kind of weird, and it feels kind of weird to them, so they don't do it. All spiritual warfare is, is this. It is praying in the authority of Jesus Christ against the enemy. And you've got to know this when, you, when we do spiritual warfare, and we should do it on a daily basis, folks. You've got to know that when you pray, you have the authority of Jesus Christ, the authority of God Almighty. And your prayer, when you direct it against the enemy, is like a hot, fiery dart. Not a dart, a missile, a supersonic missile that flies against him. You have that authority when you pray. The Bible tells us that he's shooting darts at us all the time. Well, it's time that we start shooting back. And I, what we shoot back, and this is the only weapon we've got, there's no other gimmicks here, it's just prayer. Now, how do you pray this way? It's very simple, folks. And there's no one right way to do it. But it's simply saying, wherever you see, wherever you see the possibility of the enemy at work, coming against him specifically in the name of Jesus, it's praying like this Lord, in Jesus' name. If there are any diabolical forces that are trying to screw up this church service, we come against them in Jesus' name. Sometimes the Lord can give you a word of wisdom or a spirit of discernment where you know that there are spiritual forces that you're coming against. And then you pray with more authority. The more specific you can pray and the more authority you can pray with, the better it is. Prayer is like a laser beam. You've got to zero it in as tight as possible. So you might start general, but get more specific as the Lord leads you. But it basically comes to this. Lord, I want to come against whatever spiritual forces are screwing on my marriage. Lord, I come against, in Jesus' name, I come against whatever kind of diabolical powers are screwing up my family life, are bothering my kids. I come against whatever kind of spiritual forces might be or are certainly there behind my physical ailments or what have you. It's simply directing God authority prayer against the enemy and saying, I come against you in Jesus name. In Jesus name, I declare Uh, truth uh, truth is the best dart you can throw. I declare that you are defeated. You were defeated on the cross. You have no authority here. Get out of here because I stand in the authority of Jesus Christ. That's spiritual warfare and it's the kind of thing we're to be about time and time and time again. Don't worry about being repetitious. The Bible says pray with persistence. Just keep on machine gunning away at the problem that is there. Now what can the demons do? Well, the Bible says that they're involved in unbelief. They cause unbelief. They cause confusion in the believer's mind. The Bible portrays that they can be involved in conflict, marital conflict, or any kind of conflict. In fact, Romans 16, 19 that we sang, man, God God anoints that song. God anoints Norm. His boy, he could hardly talk before the second service. And then, bam, he's got it back again. All right. That's God working, folks. I didn't think he was going to be able to whisper the second service. And God gives him his voice back. What that song is about, if you read Romans 16, 13 through 18, it's about church conflict. Paul's talking about church conflict. And he tells them, hey, you know what? The God of peace is going to crush Satan underneath your feet. In other words, what's causing the church conflict? Could it be Satan? For Paul, it certainly is. In fact, for Paul, you get this, in Second Thessalonians, he says, Thessalonians, I wanted to come against you, but Satan prevented me. If you read the book of Acts, where Paul was prevented from going to Thessalonica, it was a riot that occurred. This riot occurred in that Paul couldn't stay in Thessalonica, so he had to leave. In the flesh, what you see is, is, is a riot, a natural riot. These people don't like Paul. But in the spirit, what Paul sees is this force behind the riot. Because Paul understands from Ephesians chapter 2 that the spirit, the principality and power of this age controls the sons of disobedience. It all depends on how you look at it. You can look at your marriage conflict in the flesh or you can also look at it in terms of the spiritual. You can look at the problems with your kids. You can look at your health. You can look at church conflicts or whatever in terms of the natural and diagnose it that way. And that's fine and good and you need to do it. But also also include in here an awareness that there can be spiritual factors behind it. How to do spiritual warfare, let me, just, let, me, let me just share with you in closing something that I think is very balanced, all right? I believe that in most problems in life, you've got to shoot in two directions. You, shoot, you do everything possible in the natural to take care of the problem, but never forget to shoot some serious arrows against whatever force might be aggravating that situation. You don't have to know, in particular, what is there, what's bothering you, though maybe God will give you that information. But shoot it in two directions. You're dealing with depression, for example. Severe depression. You know what? Go to counseling. Do that. Check out the chemicals. Sometimes people have a chemical imbalance. Do that. There's nothing wrong with that. That's natural. Use common sense. This thing gets screwy when people start getting uncommon with it. At the same time, however, know this. At the very, very least, at the very least, the principality and power of this age loves the fact that you're depressed. And if, it, if it's to his advantage, he's going to exert some influence there to keep you that way. So it just doesn't do a bit of harm to start doing some spiritual warfare about it. Not that that's the only explanation, but that that's one of the variables to consider. And when we witness to people, know that one of the variables to consider is the spiritual dimension. And in church conflict, and in marriage conflict, and in, in, in dealing with people's sicknesses or whatever, Jesus many times diagnosed sickness as resulting from demonic interference. He even refused to a demon of muteness and a demon of deafness. In fact, in the Greek, it's literally a mute demon and a death demon. Bizarre stuff. But apparently there were spiritual beings who had some kind of authority in bringing about this ailment in people's lives. That's why the Bible calls disease, it uses this word disease, which in the Greek literally means to whip or to scourge, because the Bible sees these things as being whippings from the enemy. So it's good when, when we're coming against sickness and disease and cancer, leukemia or what have you, to deal with it in the natural get the radiation treatment, take the, the pill, go to the doctor, get some rest. At the same time, know that there is a struggle that is not about flesh and blood. And at the very least, he's, the enemy is there salting the wound to make it worse. Be shooting in two directions. Do everything you can do within your power to take care of your marriage. Do not use this spiritual warfare stuff as a cop-out and an escape from dealing with real practical issues. At the same time, know that there's an enemy that's going to be trying to aggravate this situation. You shoot in two directions. But we are to be involved in spiritual warfare and it's crucial. And then let me finally say this. What is this, my third closing? Maybe it's my fourth. Well, I, I, I want to say this and I'm going to end with this. What should our attitude be? That's a question that a lot of people had. And in a word, it's this. Our faith is to be centered on Jesus Christ, not demons. The one we believe in the one who, has, who, who alone gives us power and victory over this is Jesus Christ. Now, we are not to be obsessed with the enemies of Christ. We're not to be obsessed with the devil. We're not to be obsessed with demons. What we're to be obsessed with is Jesus Christ. What we're, we're, we're to be infatuated with, we're to be preoccupied. We can't get our minds off of this top subject. That's Jesus Christ. Demons we think about once in a while when we need to. But the thing we are, are to be obsessed with is Jesus Christ. The second thing is that being obsessed with Jesus Christ, you've got to know this. There is no room, and I mean no room, in the Christian life for fear about this subject. Because if we know anything about Jesus Christ, that, that is that he has crushed Satan underneath his feet, and he's going to do it now underneath our feet just for the fun of it. He is victorious. He has routed the, 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 these demons, and we have got authority over them. The Bible says that God, now here are these, these are scriptural quotes, God has not given to us a spirit of fear, praise God, but of power, and of love, and a sound mind. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There is someone in the world, all right. There are spiritual forces in the world, but the one who is in you, the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus Christ, is greater than all of that. So we are to walk, folks, with confidence. We are to walk with a sense of victory. We are to walk even in the middle of battles where we're being hassled and can't sleep at night. We are to walk with a sense of joy. Because whatever else they can do to us, you know what? They cannot take away this, this, this treasure in earthen vessels, and that really ticks them off bad. So we are to walk with a sense of confidence with this. The only thing we need to fear is that we'll start fearing. I heard that from somebody. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. That we forget who we are, forget the authority that we, ha- we have. We are to walk in confidence about this whole thing. Our eyes focus on Jesus Christ. We walk with confidence. At the same time, walk with awareness. Do not ignore this. We are to beware. Paul says, don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. Shoot in both directions. At first, if you've never done this before, and a lot of people haven't, they come from churches where they've never taught about, talked about this stuff, when you start praying like, you know, I rebuke you, devil, it feels weird. Like, oh, that sounds really corny. But any time you do something for the first time, it feels weird, right? So do it. Do it. And you might find yourself really getting energized and the power of God flowing through you. Become a spiritual warrior. God does not want churchgoers He wants spiritual warriors. He wants people who know how to do battle. I'm not saying don't come to church. No, I'm not saying that. But if that's where it stops, that's incomplete. He wants warriors, people who know how to do spiritual warfare in their closet for their family, for their marriage, for their work, for unsaved people, because that's where this real struggle is all about. Father, I pray, God, that you would right now be moving in our midst. You are here, Lord. I I, I sense your presence. I thank you, Lord God, uh, for, for, for just taking this dead body of mine this morning and giving me this energy. Man, I feel, Lord, like I just drank 17 bottles of Mountain Dew. Um, And and I I thank you for that. You got me on hyperdrive. But, Lord, I pray, God, that, that you turbocharge each one of us to make us warriors, Lord. Lord, as we go out of this place, remind us, engrave in our hearts that we have the authority, we have the weaponry, we have the artillery, we have the ammunition, we have all that we need to do what you've called us to do, and then, Lord God, motivate us to do it. Help us, Lord God, to throughout this week be looking for certain gates of hells that we may tear them down, bust them open, and vanquish the enemy. Lord God, I pray that you'd be about always making us, transforming us from being churchgoers and just do-gooders to people, Lord God, who really are invested in seeing this enemy ridded out of this world once and for all. In Jesus' name we pray.